Good evening, Payson Bible Church. Happy Tuesday to you, and I hope you're ready to study the book of Acts all together here virtually as we gather to do this uh, Bible study this evening. There are a couple of announcements that I have before we get started, though, just to make sure we're all on the same page in these uh, these weeks where our schedule just changes week to week. Uh, it's a strange deal, but I uh, just want to make sure that we're clear on a couple of things. The first thing you need to know is that after tonight, there is nothing new that will be online this week. We will not have any new Bible studies online this week. The last several Thursdays, we've had something. This Thursday, we are not going to have any kind of study, so don't be waiting for that. Nothing will happen Thursday night, okay? Uh, You also need to know that we are going to meet on Sunday. We are going to open our doors for those who are comfortable coming into the building, and that's at 10 a.m., 10 a.m. Sunday morning. If you are unable to make it, for whatever reason, we're still going to broadcast the Sunday morning service on YouTube and Facebook, okay? Uh, But if you're ready and willing and able to come Sunday morning, 10 a.m. right here, we are going to have a resurrection sermon. We are going to have communion. We are going to sing songs to our risen Savior together. That'll be great. Uh, Looking forward to it. That's Sunday at 10. There was a question about coffee. We're not going to serve coffee Sunday morning. We're not going to do anything that involves, uh, you know, putting out dishes of any sort, except for the communion, uh, which comes in those little disposable cups, okay? And that'll all be prepared by just a couple of people wearing gloves. We're not going to do coffee. We're not going to do snacks. If you want a personal coffee, if you want a personal snack, you can bring that. Uh, just don't make a mess. Be an adult, okay? Don't stain our carpet. We, that's all we ask. Uh, but we're not going to set out uh, cups like we normally do. Now, starting next week and following, we are going to do our Acts study on Wednesday nights. So we're going to continue uh, our book of Acts study. Uh, We're going to finish up chapter 11 tonight, Lord willing. So we're going to pick up on chapter 12 next week on Wednesday. We're done with the Tuesday-Thursday stuff now. Uh, April is going to be behind us next week, and we are going to go back to Wednesday nights at 7. So that's something that's returning, our normal schedule, Wednesday nights at 7. Our doors will be open for that, so we'll be at the front. We will have people in these chairs behind me, hopefully and we will have our our regular Bible study, and we will still hopefully stream that online too on YouTube and on Facebook. So if you're unable or uh, uncomfortable with coming, we still want you to participate, and we'll have our live stream of that on Wednesday nights at 7 going through the book of Acts, okay? I think that's all I had for you for announcements for the moment. If you have any questions about uh, the gathering together and what those, those guidelines look like for our healthy participation in the building right now. Make sure that you check your email. If you're a regular attender at our church, hopefully you get my emails and you've seen that. And if you haven't gotten one of those, just reach out to me and I can send that to you and you can get more information, okay? Well, tonight we are covering Acts eleven nineteen through 30. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19, going through the end of the chapter. This is a shorter section comparatively. We've been covering some pretty, pretty big chunks in the book of Acts, uh, but this is very action-packed. There's a lot of names of people and names of places that we kind of have to understand at a basic level to know what's going on. And we're going to cover that together. Uh, after we pray, if you're, uh, you know, watching this live, uh, I hope that uh, your heart's in the right place, you're ready to see what God has to say to you in His Word, and let's just ask Him to do that for all of us together as we, as we pray. Father, we thank You so much, again, for technology and our ability to go through Your Word at the same time, uh, covering the same verses, having the same conversation digitally, and we ask that You would give us a great study in your word and that you would cause us to see some really uh, just amazing things that you've done, that we would see your hand of providence all through this and that we would uh, see your hand of providence in our lives as we see what you've done in the first century and think about what you're continuing to do in the 21st century. Lord, give us a a great time of study tonight and cause us to uh, just learn, learn a lot about you and about who we are and about this great salvation that you've granted to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I also want to add, if you have thoughts or questions, type them. If you're on Facebook, 
type them in, and uh, Tyler, who's pushing all the buttons back there, will hopefully see that, and we'll answer those questions on the fly. If you're on YouTube, we're probably not going to see those comments right now, but you can get on to Facebook. Just hop on over to Facebook and type in the questions over there. We'd love to interact with you real time, all right? Well, let's look at Acts 11, verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19, this is coming after Peter summarized the whole event with the Gentiles, that the Gentiles got saved. We're now moving on to like a different scene in the book of Acts, uh, starting at verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews." All right, this very first verse, we learn that there were some Jerusalem immigrants in Antioch, uh, people who had left Jerusalem and went to Antioch. And we see the name here in verse 19 that we haven't seen for a couple of chapters, the name Stephen. Remember Stephen? We spent a lot of time on Stephen back in chapters 6 and 7 and into a little bit of chapter 8. He was one of those servers that was appointed Uh, by the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6. Remember, the widows weren't getting fed, and uh, the people said to the apostles, look, we're not not able to, you know, feed these people who need to be fed. And the apostles said, well, we're busy studying the Word and praying. It's not good that we would leave that duty to do this duty. So pick out six men who can serve tables. Stephen was one of them. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he wasn't from uh, Israel, he was actually Greek, but he was a practicing Jew who had then come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He was a preacher, so he served tables, but he also preached. In Acts chapter 7, we have a very long sermon from Stephen that we covered several weeks ago, and he was a a really good preacher. God used him to proclaim really amazing and deep truths. And that led up to him being the very first martyr in Christian history. Stephen was the first man to be martyred for faith in Jesus. And what we found in Stephen's life is that his death triggered a scattering of the people of God, but also a scattering of the Word of God. Turn with me in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 8. You just need to go back a page or two. In Acts chapter 8, this is right after the death of Stephen. Uh, Stephen was uh, stoned at the end of Acts chapter 7. And then in Acts chapter 8, we learn that the persecution against the early church was really ramping up, and this is how the church responded. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's what the church did in response persecution came, the people scattered, and they didn't scatter running for, them, for their lives only thinking of themselves, but as they scattered, they took the Word of God with them. They scattered and they preached the Word. And we see today in Acts 11 verse 19, those who were scattered because of that persecution over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And what were they doing? Still speaking the Word speaking the Word. That's what they were doing as they were scattered. And you notice that there's a, another phrase there, they spoke the Word to no one except Jews. So as they were headed into increasingly Gentile lands, they left Jerusalem and they went uh, north mainly, going into Samaria, going into all these places where it was mainly Gentiles who lived there. As they went into these Gentile lands, they didn't seek out the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? They were looking for the Jews. They were very concentrated on Jewish people are the ones who are going to become Christ followers and Gentiles. Well, they don't even think about Gentiles. That that was kind of their mindset. You don't even worry about the Gentiles. But what just happened in the first part of Acts 11? In the first half of the chapter, we saw Peter preaching to a group of Gentiles, and they became believers in Jesus. And so Peter now uh, has a full understanding of who this gospel's for, not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And these people who were scattered because of the persecution didn't quite get that yet. Now, one of the places that's listed in verse 19, along with Phoenicia and Cyprus, is this city called Antioch. The city of Antioch still exists. It has a name uh, that's, I believe it's Antiochia. It's in Turkey. It's like the southernmost part of Turkey. And 
today it has a population of over 200,000 people. It's a really big city in southern Turkey. At that time, in the first century, it was the third largest city in the uh, Roman Empire, which is a, a really big deal, isn't it? I believe it had over half a million people in it in the first century. Uh, so if you think in terms of the United States, you know, our biggest city w- is New York City. For them, in the Roman Empire in the first century, their biggest city was Rome. Rome was like their New York. The second biggest city in the Roman Empire was Alexandria. You've heard of Alexandria. Uh, that's a really big city uh, on that side of the world. And the second biggest city in America is L.A. So you've got like New York and L.A., you've got Rome and Alexandria. Well, our third biggest city is Chicago, and their third biggest city is Antioch. So if you start thinking in terms of where this city would rank in terms of influence and in terms of awareness, Antioch is pretty high up there. Everybody knows about Chicago, right, in America? Well, in the Roman Empire, everybody knew about Antioch. It was a very big city. And Jerusalem wasn't nearly as big as Antioch. In fact, Jerusalem was like a third of the size. So it would be, um, you know, size-wise, it would be more like Jacksonville, thinking in American terms. Uh, Jacksonville to Chicago, right? That's a pretty big difference. Um, So Jerusalem was a smaller town, but it was very notable, of course, kind of like our Philadelphia had a lot of history, and there was a, a lot of awareness of it just because it had been around for a long time and there was a lot that went on in that city. But size-wise, Antioch was much bigger. In the first century, uh, the Romans planned out Antioch to be a commercial center. It was a very organized city uh, that had a lot of commercial business in it. It had a large Jewish community in it too. And you actually, if you've been reading the book of Acts, you know that it had a large Jewish community or that there was at least a strong Jewish influence because Again, going back to Acts chapter 6, when Stephen and the other guys were called to serve the tables, another one of the guys who was called to serve alongside Stephen was a guy named Nicholas. You remember Nicholas? He was the only one on the list where it said where he was from. It said that he was from Antioch, and more specifically, it said he was a proselyte from Antioch, meaning he was not raised as a Jew, but he converted to Judaism in Antioch. That's where he was from. And so there was a Jewish, a large Jewish community in this big Roman city that had an evangelistic influence for Judaism within the city. And, uh, and so they, they had a decent-sized community of Jews there. However, their culture was very different from Jerusalem. Uh, it would be more Hellenistic. It would be more Greekified than Jerusalem. Jerusalem's very traditional. Jerusalem's very Hebrew. Antioch wasn't that way. In Antioch, you had uh, Jews brushing shoulders with Gentiles walking down the street. Um, Jerusalem, it's all very set apart and distinguished, isn't it? Everything's very distinct. Everything is, you know where all the lines are. In Antioch, it was much more of a of mishmash of people all together. And so, in that city, you had a lot of immorality. There were temple prostitutes all over the place in Antioch, uh, all kinds of false worship and all kinds of gross sexual immorality within that city because it was like any typical big city where you're going to find that stuff. But it didn't have the same culture as Jerusalem, but it did have a large Jewish community, and yet it was filled with a lot of immorality. So that's the big first point that we get tonight, kind of starting to understand people and places. These Jerusalem immigrants were in Antioch. They were Christians, but they were only reaching out to other Jews. They weren't reaching out to Gentiles. Let's look at verse 20. Chapter 11, verse 20, it says, "...but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. In your translation might say speaking to the Greeks also, instead of saying preaching to the Hellenists also. Um, So men of Cyprus and Cyrene, these are two distant places from Antioch. Cyprus wasn't so far off. It's a big island that's in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, and Antioch is Uh, just off the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, so they're not too far apart. Now, Cyrene, that was a city in northern Libya. It's about 120 miles northeast of Benghazi. But you know about Benghazi. It was in the news uh, a few years ago. Well, about 120 miles northeast of that on the uh, shores of the Mediterranean in northern Libya was this place called Cyrene. It was a big city in that day. Men from there and men from the island of Cyprus 
were going into Antioch, and they weren't just preaching to Jews, they were also reaching out to Greeks. Now, if you're thinking about those two scenarios, reaching out to Jews only or reaching out to Jews and Greeks, which one is better? Well, of course, the second one, right? Because the gospel is for all the nations. So these men were more exemplary in their evangelism. They were reaching out to people indiscriminately. And that's the first time in all of Christian history, the very first time that evangelism to non-Jews has been on this scale. Uh, For all the history of Christianity up to this point, you've not seen people reaching out to Gentiles on a scale like this. This is the first big Gentile evangelism campaign. It's pretty neat. All right, and that's the second point tonight is you've got the men of Cyprus and Cyrene there in verse 20. So you're starting to get people and places, hopefully, lined up a little bit in your head. Third point, let's start at verse 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So God granted success in the gospel efforts in Antioch. Many people turned to the Lord. And then we find out in that section too that Jerusalem, so Antioch's up north, Jerusalem's down south, Antioch's up here by the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem's farther inland down here. But Jerusalem, which had a big Christian influence, that's where the church was for a long time, they start sending people out and they sent Barnabas up north to Antioch. It's about 300 miles away. So uh, a pretty big commitment there, both from that church and from Barnabas himself. It says here in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them. When we see phrases like this, Uh, especially in this type of context, uh, we have to understand that this is an anthropomorphism. Big word, you can use it to impress no one, but uh, the word is kind of cool once you figure out how to say it. Anthropomorphism, that is in, in Scripture when God is described as having some sort of a human quality, like a hand or an arm or eyes. Does God really have all of those things like we do? No, He doesn't. God's not a man. So he doesn't have those things. However, uh, there, in some sense, we can understand that he does have a hand and that he helps us. How do we understand as a as way of illustration that God would help us or that he would uh, interact in our lives? Well, we understand what it means that his hand is in it. God's hands are in this. Not that He literally has hands, but that He's involved and that He's active in our lives. And that's what's being said here in verse 21 when it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Uh, There's not, not a literal hand. It's meaning that God was sovereignly interacting with His creatures, and it was bringing about what follows. And of course, what follows here is that people believed and turned to Him. There was salvation taking place salvation in the lives of people. And that was demonstrated by their turning to God. Notice it says they believed by turning to the Lord. That's what they were doing. Their belief was evidenced by their repentance, that they were turning from their sin and turning to God through the gospel. And um, the church of Jerusalem is mentioned in the very next verse, in verse 22, saying that the report of this salvation came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. This is where the apostles were, uh, Peter and James and John. Uh, It seems like all the apostles were still in Jerusalem at this point. Now, it's worth noting that later on in history, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would be the one to oversee the church in Jerusalem. Uh, But at this time, the apostles are there and probably the main influencers in Jerusalem. And um, Jerusalem kind of existed as the mother church in all of this, that uh, it started in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus uh, ascended back into heaven. Uh, that's where the apostles were when 
uh, Pentecost happened. They were all there having all things in common, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, that the apostles were in Jerusalem and the church was growing in Jerusalem. And all other churches then that followed in the years to come were actually born out of Jerusalem in that sense. So Jerusalem, that church, was like the mother church for Antioch. That's important to understand. And uh, they were used to sending people because as the church grew outside of that city and they would hear reports back, they would want to know what was going on and they would send people to go check it out. And check out with me uh, Acts 8 again, Acts chapter 8, and look at verse 14 with me. Uh, Philip was a man who had a ministry. Philip was one of those six who was serving tables. Philip had a ministry where he was proclaiming the Word of God, much like Stephen, and he was having some gospel success in Samaria. Well, the church at Jerusalem wanted to know more about what Philip was doing in Samaria, and so it says in chapter 8, verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So, the people uh, in Jerusalem, namely the apostles, but the Christians that were there were hearing reports of things going on outside of Jerusalem, and so they would send people quite frequently to go find out what was going on. And that's what we see tonight in Acts 11, where it says, the church in Jerusalem heard a report and they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to find out what was going on up there. And Barnabas, we learned about a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 9, Tyler walked through uh, who Barnabas was and some aspects of his life. This was a great choice for them to send Barnabas. God's hand was in this too. Just like God's hand was with the evangelizers in Antioch, God's hand was in Jerusalem as they decided what man to send up there to Antioch. Barnabas was the perfect choice. Do you know where Barnabas was from? He was from Cyprus, that island in the eastern Mediterranean where some of the, these evangelistic Christians were from. Cyprus and Cyrene, well, Paul, he was from, or not Paul, Barnabas, he was from Cyprus. And of course, Barnabas is an encourager. His name means son of encouragement. And what did Barnabas do? Well, look what it says in uh, verse 23. It says, Barnabas encouraged or exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's what those people needed. They were new Christians. He, he came along and he encouraged them. What better role than for someone to, to be in at that time as an encourager with young baby Christians? It's very, very easy for young Christians to get discouraged when persecution comes. Remember Jesus' teaching about the sower who went out to sow and that soil that was shallow and the the plant sprung up, and then it was scorched by the sun, and it withered and died really fast. Well, what was the sun in that illustration? Persecution. That as the gospel took a little bit of root, and that person sprung up and was really excited about the gospel, when persecution came because of the gospel, that plant withered and died, and it was all over. Well, Barnabas comes along he knows that these people are going to experience more and more persecution. And as an encourager, he says, remain true to the Lord Jesus. Resolve to be faithful to God. And it says in verse 24 that he was a good man, that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was full of faith. That's something that was said about Stephen also, that martyr from Acts chapter 7. It said multiple times that he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And then here it's said of Barnabas also. Barnabas, the one who encouraged them to resolve to abide in the Lord Jesus. And the result of all of this, God's sovereign working in all of this, look at verse 21 again. It says, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And look at verse 24. It says, a great many people were added to the Lord. So what was God doing? He was building His church. He was building His church. That's what He does in times of persecution. God doesn't go into hiding. God doesn't get scared. But what does God do? He fills His people full of boldness, and He grows His church. He builds His church. We're seeing it right here in the book of Acts. Well, Tyler, do we have any questions so far? No questions yet. Do we have anybody watching?
We have a couple people watching. A couple people watching. That's good. I'm on there, so that counts. Great. Great. Well, if you have questions, please ask. Um, would love to be able to answer those. We have plenty of time tonight as we're going through this study. So if you think of any questions, thoughts or questions that you have, please share. All right? Well, um, we just covered the uh, third point here that Jerusalem sends Barnabas. All right? So you've got the men from Jerusalem who go way before Barnabas up there to evangelize in Antioch, but they're only looking for Jews. They don't care about the Gentiles. Then you've got men who are not from Jerusalem. They're from the island of Cyprus and that city in Libya called Cyrene. They go out and they're evangelizing to Gentiles, not just to Jews. And then uh, you've got word coming back to the church in Jerusalem of what's going on. So they send Barnabas and Barnabas is a great encouragement to them. And now, something interesting is about to happen. Look at verse 25. Um, after saying that a great many people were added to the Lord at the end of verse 24, it says in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, here comes Paul. Paul is back. Did you know that he went away? <laughs> uh, maybe if you haven't been following through our study, you didn't know that. But we actually saw uh, Saul, or Paul, as you probably know him, we saw him get saved all the way back in chapter 9. And then he went away. He disappeared. And now he's back again, and God is going to use him in a mighty way. Um, if you remember from the story... Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was a Jewish man who was devout in every respect, and he went around killing Christians. That was like one of the things that he was really passionate about because he thought he was protecting God's true religion, Judaism. So he went around making sure that Christians would be put to death. Well, uh, Jesus said, actually, you are going to become a Christian now, and Jesus changed his heart right on the spot. Then Paul started talking to people about Jesus in uh, the Damascus and Arabia, these two areas that are north of Jerusalem. And he did that for a few years and then decided it was time to come down and meet the apostles, those original apostles. So he comes down to Jerusalem, it says in Acts chapter 9, after a few years of preaching the gospel in Damascus, he comes back down to Jerusalem and the apostles say, hey, we know that guy. Um, and all the Christians in Jerusalem kind of had this thing going on where they weren't sure whether they should just readily embrace him or if they should still be scared. Because remember, he was putting Christians to death. That's what really got him excited. Well, uh, the Jews also didn't like Paul preaching the gospel there. Uh, the, the Jews were scared also, in a sense. And they decided that, you know, they needed to stop Paul now, who used to be on their team. They needed to stop him. And so Paul was just kind of like this really polarizing figure right from the get-go. And because there was threat from the Jews, the apostles decided, we're going to put you on a boat and we're going to send you across the Mediterranean back to your home, Tarsus. So Paul went back to Tarsus. He, just to recap now, he gets saved in Acts chapter 9. He preaches the gospel for a few years in Damascus. Then he comes down to Jerusalem and they say, nope, you need to leave. And they put him on a boat to go back to Tarsus. Through all of that, it has been 14 years since Paul became a Christian. 14 years. And can you imagine if his story ended right then and there? There's some of you watching this or listening to this who haven't even been Christians for 14 years. Paul has been a Christian for over 14 years at this point, and there is so much ministry that God has for him, isn't there? There's so much more that God has for him to do. He has just barely gotten started. So it says again in verse 25 that Barnabas went to Tarsus, where Paul was hanging out, to look for Paul or Saul. Why did Barnabas go look for him? Because this is just like a really abrupt statement. Um, you know, as far as many people were concerned, they didn't even know who he was. There were probably new Christians in Antioch who had no idea who Saul was. And there were probably lots of Christians down in Jerusalem who had known about Paul at one point and forgot all about him. If, <coughs> if they were to hear his name, they would be like, um, <coughs> did we black out? We're back. 
All right. Um, if they were to hear his name, they would have been like, oh, well, yeah, that's right, Paul. Whatever happened to Paul? We sent him back to Tarsus and never heard from him again. Well, Barnabas hadn't forgotten. Why did he go look for Paul? Well, the text doesn't say uh, exactly why Barnabas went back to look for Paul at that time, but we can think of a, uh, a couple of reasons. Um, one is that Barnabas was probably waiting for Saul slash Paul to return because it seems like Barnabas understood from the beginning how big of an asset Paul would be to the church, how much of a gift Paul was to the church. And you can see this in Acts 9. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 9, and let's look at verse 26. Acts 9, verse 26, you can see Barnabas' reaction to Paul uh, soon after he got saved. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 26. It says, When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. See what I mean? Polarizing. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. All right, so all I wanted you to see there was Barnabas' attitude toward Paul. And this is tough as Christians when we hear that someone becomes a believer. There's going to be a group of people who doubt it, and then there's going to be a group of people who readily believe it. Barnabas was in that latter group. He readily believed that Paul's story. Yeah, he saw the Lord. He was converted. How many of us would have sat back and said, nah, get, you know, I got to see more. I need to see more evidence. And what's difficult about that is there are times when that is the right position, and there are times when it's not the right position. We have to be humble enough to recognize that and to not think that we know all things, but to really be humble when evaluating someone else and trying to seek and understand if that person is a believer or not. Uh, So hold that thought. We're going to come back to that thought in just a moment. But um, Barnabas obviously saw Paul's giftedness, and, uh, you know, was someone who hadn't forgotten. He, he remembered Paul. And it's also possible that, even though the text doesn't say this, it's also very possible and feasible that as Paul was in Tarsus, his reputation grew, at least locally. He was there for nine years, and we have to believe that he was preaching the gospel. I mean, that's what he was doing in Jerusalem before he was sent to Tarsus. He was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He was sparring with the Hellenists. And uh, when they sent him off to Tarsus, you got to believe he was doing that up there too, that he was looking for some dialogue and that he was going after it uh, with the gospel. And so it's likely that in that region around Tarsus that people knew full well who Paul was. And if Barnabas was tuned in to the church up there and what God was doing in Tarsus, it's uh, just very, very certain that he was up to date on Paul's whereabouts, what Paul was up to. By the way, Tarsus is near Galatia. There you go. You can write that down to look it up on a map later. Tarsus was uh, just a little bit south of Galatia. Um, Despite all of that, it's interesting that Barnabas called for him and no one else in Jerusalem. Um, That says something about what Barnabas thought of Paul, doesn't it? To think that Paul was there in Tarsus for nearly a decade, and for the last decade, Barnabas has been in Jerusalem, getting to know guys, working with guys, training guys, being trained by guys, uh, all of that going on in Jerusalem. And yet, when he's in Antioch and needs somebody, he doesn't call up someone that he was just with for the last 10 years. He says, you know what? I'm going to get the next boat to Tarsus, and I'm going to go find Paul. Barnabas thought quite a bit of Paul. And it's sad in a way because they're going to have a disagreement here in a few chapters. And if you kind of get into the emotional state that Barnabas may have been in, that he really loved Paul and they were real, he really thought a lot of him, uh, Acts 15, when they have that disagreement, can be a little bit heartbreaking because it's like, oh man, it's like the Lord knit their hearts together and then just their flesh tore it apart or something. 
but in this moment, we see that Barnabas really cared for Paul, really thought a lot of Paul. Um, again, Paul was up in Tarsus for nine years, and as we think about uh, skepticism, that thought I told you to hang on to, as we think about skepticism of new believers, how um, we can we have to be really humble in saying whether or not someone's a Christian or saying someone's not a Christian. We have to be really humble about that. On the flip side, the new convert needs to be humble too. And that's something that we see in the life of Paul here. It could have been really simple for Paul to say to the disciples who wanted to send him away to Tarsus. Paul could have said, you know what? I saw the Lord. He called me to be an apostle. I have a giftedness, uh, not just in my knowledge of Judaism, but in the special gifting that God has given me that I can perform signs and wonders. I can preach and uh, do all sorts of things that I don't need to go back to Tarsus. Give me the stage. Can you see Paul rightfully saying something like that? Uh, The way I just said it was kind of... uh, fleshly, give me the stage. But Paul could have said, you know, look, I've got this giftedness. Let me lead. Get out of my way and let me lead. He had a right to say that. Uh, But what did he do? He went back to Tarsus, his hometown. If we thought, uh, you know, Jerusalem was small in comparison to Antioch, Tarsus was not a big place. And he goes back there for nearly a decade, knowing that God has made him a disciple and knowing that he had a particular giftedness that the church would benefit from greatly. He was humble enough to do that. And let me tell you that as someone who is somewhat frequently involved in the business of having to um, either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to other people's ministries, it is always encouraging to see humility from somebody in this type of way. Uh, here's a, a relatively recent example. Last year, we had the quote-unquote conversion of Kanye West. Now, I recognize that many people watching this are older and white, and so you don't know who Kanye West is, and that's okay, all right? But there's this rapper named Kanye West who apparently went through some sort of conversion experience. One of the like the first thing that he started doing, and I think maybe he had already started these beforehand or whatever, but one of the things that he had in his life from that moment forward was hosting a Sunday service that he would travel. He travels around the country. I think he still does it. Travels around the country, different cities, opens up shop and does music and has some preaching that goes on there. And it's like his ministry. From day one of being a Christian, he had a nationwide ministry. Now, let me just ask you, is that wise? No, it is not. That is not a wise thing. Uh, Just to answer the question for you, a man has to be proven before he can be in ministry. A man has to meet certain qualifications before he can be in ministry. And you take someone like Paul, remember, it wasn't day one that he went down to Jerusalem to go meet the disciples, and they were all scared of him. That happened three years after his conversion. He had been preaching the gospel for three years. There are people out there who have been Christians for three years who think they're the smartest Christians who have ever lived and that they need to write all the books and that they need to have all the conferences. He had been a Christian for three years, a master in Judaism, who had seen the risen Lord with his own eyes. He had gone through all of that. He had the giftedness of an apostle. And even still, he said, I will go back to my hometown. And he went back there probably as far as he was concerned for the rest of his life. He was going to go back to Tarsus, small town out, out there, just going to go back and just be there until he died. Until Barnabas came and Barnabas said, I need that guy. God was the one who built Paul's ministry. Paul didn't build his ministry. God was the one who gave Paul a quote-unquote platform. Paul didn't build his own platform. But God did all of that for him. God was the one working in his life and making all those opportunities. Now, it's possible, and I thought this was an interesting note from my study, it's possible that during this time in Tarsus, during uh, Paul's nine years there, that the events of 2 Corinthians 11, at least most of them, probably happened during that time that he was in Tarsus. If you can remember 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists off all the things he's gone through. He talks about persecutions. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being beaten, being abandoned, being uh, out at sea overnight, all these things that happened to him. 
Well, according to F.F. Bruce, a commentator that I really like to read, um, a lot of those things probably happened when he was in Tarsus. It was during that time that God was really training him for ministry, was really beating him down and giving him the endurance, teaching him endurance that he would need for a life of ministry as he was maturing as a believer. Well, um, as he comes to Antioch with Barnabas, you see what it says in verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. An amazing year of ministry. Paul getting to know Barnabas really well. Uh, they were learning each other's personalities and their giftedness, how to do ministry. You can just imagine that they were like probably flipping every other Sunday with uh, the Sunday morning Lord's Day preaching and then preaching all throughout the week, teaching throughout the week, dividing up, uh, you know, who would train certain guys and who would lead the evangelism, uh, uh, outreach efforts and things like that. All of that was going on for that whole year in Antioch. And what a blessing to that church, that that church would have as its foundation these brand new believers in Antioch, their foundation was a year with Paul and Barnabas. That's pretty cool. And uh, their team, the Paul and Barnabas team, was certainly very effective uh, there. And there's this little note at the end of verse 26 that it's at this place that the disciples were first called Christians. That word, you've heard it said it means little Christs. Uh, That word means adherence to Christ, those who... um, follow or who are attached to Christ. In the Bible, you'll read about the uh, Herodians, the Herodians. Do you ever think about that word, the Herodians? Well, they were people who were faithful to Herod. They were, uh, the Pharisees would conspire with the Herodians, the ones who pledged allegiance to King Herod. Um, That's who the Herodians were, and so the Christians were the ones who pledged allegiance to King Jesus, Jesus Christ. Right? So that was the fourth point, the return of Paul. And then we'll hit the last one. Tyler, any questions or thoughts? Any comments? Any thumbs down? Any angry faces? Dean and Joe and Lizzie and uh, Diana all wanted us to know that they were watching on YouTube. So there are people watching. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just drag it out because we have to go at least an hour. No, <clears throat> I won't. But this last part is going to take a little bit of time. It's a very interesting passage, a little bit confusing, too, at first read. So let's look at verse 27, verses 27 through 30. We're going to read about a man named Agabus. Agabus. That'd be a good name for a cat. Agabus. All right, verse 27. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up, And foretold by the Spirit, there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the fifth aspect of our passage tonight is that Agabus, he issued a prophecy, and the whole church responded to this prophecy about a famine. So this man named Agabus, this is actually one of two events uh, where we see a man named Agabus in the book of Acts. And he predicted here by the Spirit, it says, that's important to note, that it's not his own prediction. He didn't have a crystal ball. He wasn't flipping tarot cards. This was by the Spirit, and in verse 28, that there would be a great famine over all the world, or in the whole, or over the whole world. I'm reading from the ESV tonight. I can't remember what the NASB said, but the idea is that it's the whole Roman world, not literally the entire earth, but the whole Roman world. And this isn't the first time that Luke has used phrasing like this to mean a certain specific area. You can write down Luke chapter two, verse one. Luke chapter two, verse one, and I'll just read it to you. Luke, the same guy who wrote the book of Acts, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and talking about the birth of Christ, it says, "...in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered." Were they going to be able to count every human being in the whole world? No. But all the world uh, had this idea of the inhabited world, and namely, in this case, the Roman world. There was going to be a great famine throughout all the... uh, Uh, inhabited areas of the empire. 
And it says in the text, Luke added this for us by God's inspiration, that it happened during the reign of Claudius. So this famine prophecy came true during the reign of the emperor Claudius. And it's well documented in history that during Claudius's reign of 14 years, he, he was in charge for 14 years, that there was a succession of bad, bad harvests and of uh, shortages of food throughout different areas. It happened in Rome, it happened in Greece, it happened in Egypt, it happened in Judea. There's, um, I mentioned him earlier, F.F. Bruce, that's the main commentary I'm using for our study in the book of Acts. F.F. Bruce said this about the famine prophecy and it's how it played out in history. He said, famine conditions are attested for Rome at the beginning of Claudius's rule, for Egypt in his fifth year, for Greece in his eighth or ninth year, and again in Rome between his ninth and eleventh years. Uh, More generally, then he lists a name of an ancient historian, his name is Suetonius, says that his principate was marked by persistent droughts. So one ancient secular historian said that Claudius' reign was marked by persistent droughts. And this is all uh, covered in Eusebius, who's an early uh, church historian, uh, Eusebius, and from Tacitus, and from Josephus. And I've got Josephus here. If you don't know the name Josephus, you should probably learn it. Josephus was not a Christian, but Josephus was a Jew. And I've got his uh, antiquities here. Um, he was a Jewish historian from the first century. This is incredibly valuable to have as a Christian because when you turn to Josephus's history and his account of what happened in the first century, you are not reading the words of a disciple of Christ, sadly, and it is absolutely sad and tragic that he was not a believer. But for the church today, there's great value in his works, especially because he wasn't a believer, because we're re- not reading something that's biased toward Christianity. Instead, we turn to his histories, see what he wrote down and documented from the first century, and understand he's really got no skin in the game here. Um, he's got no dog in the fight as far as proving Christianity true. And yet, listen to what he says about uh, this famine time. It says, a little before the beginning of this war, when Claudius was emperor of the Romans and Ishmael was our high priest, and when so great a famine was come upon us that one-tenth deal of wheat was sold for four drachmae, when no less than seventy cori of flour were bought, brought into the temple at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not one of the priests were so hardy as to eat one crumb of it, even while so great a distress was upon the land." And this out of a dread of the law and of wrath, which God retains against acts of wickedness, even when no one can accuse the actors. There was a great famine in the land, and not one of the priests were having a crumb of the bread. There was uh, talk in here about drachme and a deal of wheat and all of that. You can look all that stuff up if you just Google Josephus. Uh, famine of Claudius, you'll be able to find things online similar to that, that this happened in real time just a few years after the prophecy was made, okay? Uh, So it's documented in history, this prophecy of Agabus. And what the context of all this is, because we don't want to lose sight of what's going on in Acts 11, Agabus says this to... um, to the church in Antioch. It says in verse 27 that Agabus was one of the prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. By the way, you might be wondering, because I said Antioch is north of Jerusalem, why does it say they came down to Antioch? Well, that's because Jerusalem is way higher in elevation than Antioch is, okay? So they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem, and Agabus, who was one of those prophets, stood up and said this to the church, Verse 29, well, what was the reason for them to help out the churches in Judea? For the church in Antioch, and again, this is just an amazing thing. Baby Christians, they've just spent one year with Barnabas and Paul getting all the the training that uh, they needed, just an amazing one year. Then these prophets come around from Jerusalem and they say, 
hey, we need you to raise a bunch of funds and send it back to the churches in Judea. And that's pretty wild because they're new Christians. Uh, What do they know about giving? Well, it says that they responded really well. It says in verse 30, they did so, sending it to the elders uh, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It says in verse 29, they gave according to their ability. And that's something we've been learning in our giving study, that two-part giving study that we have. Our New Testament principle for giving is to give according to your ability. And if you're like the Corinthians, you give even beyond your ability. Um, so that's an amazing thing. Do we have a question here, Tyler? Uh, no question. Lizzie said that it's interesting there's prophecy after Christ, though. So maybe that's something you want to speak to for a sec. Sure. Yeah, there were lots of prophecies after Christ. We don't have very many of them documented. This is one of the specific ones that we have documented. And there are a few specific ones in the New Testament. But we find out that there are actually lots and lots of prophecies that happened in that early church. Uh, Namely, 1 Corinthians 14 will speak to this. Let's go ahead and turn there. Since we just have all the time in the world, I was just telling Tyler before we started... It's quarantine time. There's no time like quarantine time. We, we just hang out and talk like the clocks don't even exist. We are living outside of the clock. 1 Corinthians 14, um, we have lots of conversation here about prophesying. Let's just start at verse 1. Paul says to this church in Corinth, and by the way, maybe you don't know this, we are going to be going through the book of 1 Corinthians starting later this year. That's something to look forward to. It's going to be a 17-year study. <laughs> I don't know how long it'll take, but it'll take a while. First uh, Corinthians 14, verse 1. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, or speaks yeah, to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Um Two different ways to talk about prophesying and prophecy. One way is to talk about preaching, just preaching. It's uh, an idea of conveying uh, a message that's been written down, you're uh, forth-telling, you're preaching forth from the Word of God. But another way of prophesying is to talk about something that's going to happen, that by the Spirit you are stating something that hasn't happened yet as though it is going to happen. And that's foretelling. So you've got the forth-telling, preaching forth the Word of God, and foretelling, where you're telling something beforehand. And uh, we'll work through this eventually in our First Corinthians study of what's going on in verse 14, or chapter 14. But we have to recognize that both of those types of prophecy were active in the early church. Look back at chapter 12 with me, First Corinthians chapter 12, when it talks about spiritual gifts, starting in verse... 7. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit utterances of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit." to another faith by the, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Here you go, verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So what you see in uh, the early church, the giftedness in the early church, is that there were miraculous gifts that were issued at that time. We don't get those gifts today. We don't have people rolling into Payson Bible Church doing miracles. We don't have people who walk in here who speak in languages that they did not previously know, and then another person interpreting that by the power of the Spirit. It's not happening today. It hasn't happened since the first century, since the era of the apostles. Um, but that was happening then. In the first century, it was happening then. One more thing I want to show you, particularly about prophets and then we'll get back to Acts, is Ephesians. Ephesians 2, looking at verse 20. Ephesians 2, 20. 
Listen to what this says about the importance of prophets in the first century church. So not only was it happening, it was critical that it was happening. We, we don't just embrace the fact that it happened. We embrace that this was God's design and God used it. Look at the very end of the chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 19. Ephesians 2.19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The church of which we are a part, we were built on the foundation of not just the apostles, but also the New Testament prophets. The fact that He says apostles and prophets instead of prophets and apostles, indicates to us that there's New Testament in view here, the New Testament prophets, that Paul was, had in mind by the inspiration of the Spirit that the church rests on the foundation of what uh, the apostles and prophets taught in the first century to that early church. Okay? Good. Any other questions come up from that? How lame. Man, if you're not going to have questions about prophecies, then... That's probably good. We need to stay on track. Okay. Uh, last point that I want to discuss concerning Agabus and his prophecy, the good cat name, Agabus, and the prophecy that he had. It says that after they uh, took up the collection, so back in verse 29, the very end of the chapter, they took up the collection to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. That's the region around Jerusalem. And they did so not by mail. They didn't have a Pony Express. They couldn't wire it over, but instead they sent Barnabas and Saul. So these two men who were just like team, teamwork, leading the teaching in all of Antioch, building up that church by their giftedness, they sent them with the money to go back down 300 miles down to Jerusalem, which is uh, an amazing thought, or at least the area around Jerusalem. So hundreds of miles back down to Judea. And Remember, this is well over a dozen years after Paul's conversion, 14 years uh, after that, and now he's being seen as a leader in that early church. As Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, they were certainly seen as leaders there. And then now, going back down to Jerusalem, this starts kind of a new phase for their ministry, uh, where they're going to be down in Judea for a while, and they're going to be seen as leaders in the church there too. This is really the start of Paul's New Testament ministry. Because from this point forward, we're going to get into some amazing stories, uh, particularly starting in chapter 13 with Paul's first missionary journey, and then, of course, his second and his third. He's planting churches, and he's being used by God in a great way. Now, Galatians uh, chapters 1 and 2, Paul gives a bit of an autobiography in those chapters. But I want us to look and close with chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 just to kind of hear from Paul firsthand about what was going on during these days. Galatians chapter 2, Paul talking about his conversion, talking about uh, going back to Tarsus and being brought back. Uh, Here's what he has to say in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So what, what this is saying, he's speaking of leaving Antioch and going to Jerusalem, taking Titus along with me. There's another name you know from the New Testament. Isn't that cool? I went up because of a revelation, Catman, Agabus, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain." And you can just keep reading that on your own time, Paul's personal autobiography here to the Galatians, recounting these exact moments that we're studying in the book of Acts. Pretty cool. New Testament fits together. It's like there's one author or something, huh? The Holy Spirit teaching us these really cool things about church history. All right. Well, I guess we're at 8 o'clock. Still nothing? Still dry in the old comment section there? All right. We're talking about famines in Judea, and we got a famine in the comment section. So uh, why don't I pray before I say something else stupid, and then we will dismiss for the evening. Father, thank you again for our study and for what you've done throughout the history of your church as you have been building this church 
by your son, Jesus Christ, that he has been uh, interrupting our lives and saving us and placing us into his body. What an amazing thing that your Holy Spirit has been administering gifts just as he wills. We have just experienced uh, the triune God uh, through salvation, through the church. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done and what you continue to do. We ask your blessing on the church worldwide, and in particular in our neighborhoods, especially during this time when so many people are living in fear and so many people are confused about truth. Uh, Give us boldness, cause us to be faithful. Give us a heart for the people around us that we would be uh, encouragers and that we would be uh, truth proclaimers and that we would... um, Above all things, seek your kingdom first and look to honor you in the things that we say and do and think. Lord, we thank you so much again for this study. We thank you that we're going to see faces this Sunday uh, as we gather on the Lord's Day to proclaim your excellencies. Uh, Give us just a, a real great week as we lead up to that moment. Give us a real special day on Sunday as we get together and talk about our risen Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.